You're listening to The Paul Higgins Show, the place for ambitious tech consultants with purpose. After 18 years as a global sales leader and having a successful tech consulting exit, I'm sharing what's working now to transform emerging tech consultants worldwide into trusted consultants that attract the best clients and deliver measurable results. When you're ready to level up your clarity results and freedom, begin with the free tech consulting blueprint available at techconsultantsblueprint.com. Imagine this, you're looking to sell your tech consulting business, but it's your first time and you wonder what the 80-20 is, what the most important is. Hello, I'm Paul Higgins and welcome to episode 508 of the Paul Higgins podcast. In this podcast, we will cover that question for you. We'll show you, or the guest will show you exactly what that 80-20 is, what the most important thing is to get the maximum sale. And also he'll take you through a six-year journey of scaling his tech consulting business and getting a great result at the end. And our guest is uh, Oliver. He is a Salesforce consultant turned entrepreneur. He founded Everpeak Partners in 2017 and grew it to a successful consulting practice with a team of dozen uh, Salesforce experts. In 2023, he sold the company to a private equity firm. Oliver continues as a business development role and has the minority share in the company. In his free time, he loves to travel, hike, play chess, and read. And he resides in Portland, Oregon, but he'll tell you about something that he's uh, building in the background. So what I'll do now is hand you over to Oliver Shoulder from Everpeak Partners. Great to have you here, Oliver. Great to be here. Yeah, well, we've had some uh, fun conversations about the excellent position that you've got your business into, and uh, I thought it was only fair that we share it with others that are seeking to do a similar thing. But why don't we uh, kick off with who your ideal client is currently for Everpeak Partners and what problems you'd love to solve for them? Sure. Yeah, so Everpeak Partners is a Salesforce consulting firm with heavy side on sales operations so we work with businesses, typically 20 to 1,000 employees that are using Salesforce, and we help them optimize the platform. So mainly Sales Cloud, but a few other products like Service, CPQ, Experience Cloud, Marketing Cloud, and a couple other products, as well as a lot of uh, custom integration work and third-party tools. Right. And what sort of problems do you, do you solve for them? I would say that the biggest problems that we run into or that we help that our clients run into that we solve are Salesforce orgs that aren't really op operating efficiently and effectively. So not having good quality reporting, not having reliable data, having a system that's very manual with not a lot of automation, maybe extra steps or steps that don't totally make sense. Like lead and opportunity stages that you look at them and you say, that doesn't seem right. These stages are all over the map and maybe different people are even using the system in different ways without a standardized training and like a standardized guidebook for using the platform. And, and how many of your clients are pre-existing Salesforce versus you moving them onto Salesforce? I would say in the last year or two, it's probably... 
existing Salesforce orgs that we work on. And that's been our specialty is coming into companies that have used the platform, whether it's for a few months, a few years, or even in some cases like a decade. And they've had a lot of cooks in the kitchen and they need an optimization. So that's a term that we use a lot is optimizing the platform. But of course, a smaller portion is doing new implementations of different products. And uh, you've seen fantastic growth since 2017. If you look at uh, your sources of where your leads come from, has it you know stayed the same over those uh, seven years or is it uh, or six years or is it uh, changed? You know, I, I would say it's evolved a, a little bit, but once the business was established, we got a lot of business directly from Salesforce and the account executives that worked there. So it's been, you know, small pieces, web forms, small piece is cold outreach. And then I would say, you know, the lion's share is referrals from different sources with the largest source by far being Salesforce itself and the account executives that work there. Yeah. And any, any tips for someone that's starting out? Because, you know, everyone says, oh, it's so crowded. They're, they're so busy. Salesforce you know, account executives, just you can't get through to them anymore. Any tips that you'd love to share on how you've got share of voice within them? And obviously that's led to successful leads. Yeah, I would say that the best advice, and this applies in channel sales with AEs as well as with prospects is just add value. So if you're just poking the AEs and saying, hey, we're a Salesforce shop, come work with us, that might not add a lot of value. But, you know, if you have an existing client that AE is covering and you can give them some insight, there's value there. And they're a lot more likely to take that meeting than a, like a cold outreach. And what what's some examples of, of what value looks like? I mean, typically the way I'd start is I would work with an AE that's already on one of our existing clients. And I would cover what we're doing and I would figure out how I would like to learn what the goals are for the account executive. Hey, do you want to position experience cloud and try to, you know, get that positioned before the end of the fiscal year? And how might we go about that evaluation and how would we co-sell together? And then we can also give them some intel that they might not have because we're boots on the ground doing work in the org. That's a great way to get that relationship going where you're not really in the sales mode or sort of that like pestering, poke, poke, poke. Hey, like we exist, please talk to us, comes from a much stronger position. Great. And and those communications, are they, and what format do they take? Um, I mean, like email or phone. Yeah. And have you met many in person? Oh yeah. The in-person meetings are, are very effective. Went to meet with a, a regional VP and uh, her team in the New York office. And the ROI on that trip was like, I would say well over 10 X in fact, far exceeding 10 X what I spent on the trip and in the revenue that we generated from that. And, you know, we took them out to did like a presentation in the Salesforce tower, then did a happy hour. And then we went out to a Knicks game in uh, Madison Square Garden. Fantastic. And I know, was that 
you flew all the way from Portland all the way to New York. Why is is that right, or were you somewhere else at the time? No, I uh, flew from Portland to New York, just like five and a half hours on an airplane. But you know, I always like to have fun when I do the trips as well. So I got to see some college friends and eat good food, and you know, see all the sites in New York while I was there. As I said. So in the uh, intro, you know, you've done a brilliant job to to exit the business. Growth, like you said, is, you know, a lot of the growth comes from your great relationship with, with Salesforce and how you've leveraged that and obviously doing great work because, you know, compounded some referrals as well. But tell us a little bit about, you know, everyone's dream is to basically start a business in 2017 and, and exit in 2022, right? So like, tell us a little bit about how did you always set it up for sale? Was it a chance encounter? Tell us a little bit about how it, it came about for you uh, selling it to a probably uh, VC firm. I sold the business about like the actual deal closing date was just over three months ago. So it's fairly recent. And the business was founded in 2017. So it's roughly a six-year-old business. And I would say... Probably four and a half years in or so, I started passively thinking about selling it and, and what that would look like because I also had a career as a, a Salesforce consultant for a number of years before the business was started. So I've been in the industry for about a decade and was looking at my options and spoke to someone and got some idea of what the business might be worth and that was probably a year and a half before I sold it. At the time, there wasn't a lot of recurring revenue, and I transitioned the business into more of a, a retainer and recurring revenue model. Was in a great position where, you know, I wasn't desperate to sell the business. In fact, it was more like, hey, if this doesn't sell for some time, I'm going to be fine. But I was also looking for the perfect buyer, and I probably spoke to. 15 or so different potential buyers and probably fielded two or three X more than that, that I wasn't willing to meet with because they weren't qualified for one reason or another. So, you know, it's definitely a journey, just finding the right buyer and getting to the point that a LOI is signed, letter of intent, and then going from the LOI to a closed deal is a huge amount of work. And then where I am right now is working for the business that I had founded, no longer, well, I have a very small amount of equity, but I'm not the majority owner of the business. And so quite a different dynamic. And uh, each stage has its own set of challenges. And it's, I'll tell you, there's no shortcut. It's a lot yeah. of work. Now let's quickly hear something from our sponsors. Picture this. You're the owner and leader of your tech consulting business. And from the outside, you've got it all under control. You project strength in front of your team like a swan gliding gracefully above the water. But here's the truth. Beneath the surface, you're paddling like crazy. Every day you're faced with decisions you've never had to make before. Questions like, who is my ideal client? What sets me apart from the rest? How should I price my services? Who is the right fit? for my next hire and how do I fairly compensate them? Get these decisions wrong and your business may survive, but your freedom will dwindle. I've been in your shoes and I get it. But here's the good news. After selling and mentoring countless tech consultants, I've seen the patterns for success quicker than you can discover them on your own. 
You don't have to figure it out all by yourself. You can tap into my experience and insights, and the best part, it won't cost you a fortune. It will be far less than making the wrong decision, or even worse, no decision at all. So what's the next step? Head over to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash sounding board. It's your sounding board to success where you can access the guidance you need to scale your tech consulting business and live a better life. Don't wait. Take action today. Just visit paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash sounding board. There's also a link in the show notes and unlock a brighter future for your business and yourself because you deserve success and you don't have to do it all alone. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. We were on the other side, well, we're sort of on the same side. We sold our business and uh, yeah, uh, totally my business partner went with the sale of the business. So that made it a little easier because we had an earn out and I was pretty sure that he was going to get the earnout component because uh, he was the one actually controlling the ship. But if we go back to the recurring revenue, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I'm always talking about, you know, getting recurring revenue as a percentage of the mix. What was the hardest part about shifting to recurring revenue for you? Yes. I mean, we had a lot of existing clients that were used to an hours block model. So we would be adding hours blocks and free retainer. We also had a pay as you go plan that they would get billed each month, but it would just be whatever number of hours we build. So there was no predictability in that. And it was quite difficult to manage them just pay as you go, which, you know, allowed us to get revenue without signing a new contract. But the downside is it would be it could be zero hours for three or four months and then all of a sudden they want to do all this work and you've got to figure out a way of managing it and so from a delivery perspective that was very difficult and so the retainer model allows us to have more predictability on the revenue side but as an added benefit we also have more predictability on the delivery side and how many hours we're going to expect to bill each month but of course, that also comes with the challenge where the client doesn't always have an exact 40 hours a month. That's what the uh, retainer is. So there's a lot of managing that process and there's some technical nuance with the contract and how we roll over hours and how we manage that where we find a good balance between not taking advantage of our clients and having them pay for all this time that isn't used and also making sure that we're having a consistent engagement where we're continually building out their uh, platform. Right. So I'm assuming it, it was a gradual change over that, you know, the clients that said, yes, you moved them first and then dealt with the ones who were a bit harder. Or was it like, a, you know, no, at this date, we're all going to retain it. I think if I just did at this date, you're switched over, we would probably lose a lot of clients. And, you know, I think, I think some clients uh, love the idea and others say like, we don't want another recurring revenue liability on our books, but I transitioned them over, you know, um, basically as we finished projects, I was pitching it and I would even, you know, depending on the scenario and each one was unique, but I would sometimes offer a small financial incentive, like if you sign for a retainer by the end of the month, I'll give you this level of discount. And I'll, you know, what was great too, is I would not hurt our revenue too much by just having the discount be for the first month. And that way I could be even more aggressive with the discount. And I'm a big believer in the work that we do. And I think there's a lot of value. And so I don't need to lock 
the clients into these giant contracts. And so a lot of them too, I would say, we'll just do a month to month contract. You can 30 days notice, you can cancel at any time. And that way, if it doesn't work out, you're not stuck paying for something that isn't serving you. Right. If, if I'm understanding this right, the term, so, you know, were there six months, 12 months, 18, two years, what was the term with a 30 day out of, uh, get out of jail uh, cut? You know, it, we negotiate each deal uniquely. Generally, we, we like to have a three month minimum, but I, I had plenty of deals that were a zero. There was no, I mean, you could consider it like a one month contract and each month it renews just like if someone was on a month to month lease for an, an apartment. Yeah, great. And and was that the biggest change that you made to the business model in preparation over that, you know, one and a half years time prior to sale? Or was there something else that you also made? I would say that's the biggest one is just have, having the recurring revenue because a, a buyer and it's, it's funny being a, a business owner and operating it because there's all these little intangibles that make a huge difference. Yes. And then the buyers, obviously they should factor that in, but a lot of the financial people, and if there's a small business loan or there's other just like financial investors, they're not really going to understand all the nuance of the business. They're going to look at these hard numbers of what's your, what's your MRR, what's your ARR, what's your, you know, revenue, profit, and a number of other financial data points. And so I think having those strong is important. And obviously there's no way to fake that. You know, the only way that those numbers are going to look good is if you have a business that is delivering value for clients and operating in a way that makes sense from a business model standpoint. And your current capacity, how much of what you were doing prior to the sale are you currently doing? I would say most of what I was doing before the sale I'm still doing, which is I've always been a primary business development person. So I've been the one where I leverage my background as a consultant and take a very non-salesy approach. So I like to nerd out with clients. In fact, I had a meeting just before this where we were just on a screen share looking at this company's Salesforce org and going through their list views and automation and the fields on the page layout and getting very specific, but I've been primarily been in a business development role that's sort of technical and I've continued, but the business has a new CEO on board. So she's able to work on some of those bigger picture items that I used to work on. Right. And you said you had, you know, 15 buyers over the process. Did you go and approach them or did they approach you? Did you use a broker? Sort of how did that play out? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I um, th- There's a, a couple different areas. One is there was a, a broker that I worked with at first. And he, honestly, I don't think performed to the, the level that he could have. And he found a number of buyers, but they never were great buyers. I posted to some Facebook group that was like a business buy and sell Facebook group. And I probably wrote up a fairly compelling, I run a Salesforce business looking to sell it. These are some of the high level numbers. And I got a ton of interest. I think that like 50 people commented and then I went through that and spoke to a handful of them. And I had one 
that seemed like a very good potential buyer. And at the same time, my exclusivity with the broker had expired. So I wasn't required to use him or pay some kind of fee because the exclusivity period was over. And then what ended up generating the buyer for the business was a, a good friend of mine who runs a successful SEO business also based here in the Portland area. And uh, we were just chatting one day and I brought up like, hey, I'm considering selling the business. If you knew anyone that would be interested, I'd love to get an intro. And then sure enough, he was like, you know, I actually know some people that might be interested. He made that intro and we signed an IOI, which is indication of intent. And then we went through a process, got an LOI signed and then went through an extremely intense vetting process and got to the point where we had paperwork signed and ownership transferred and a payment made and all the specific terms within there. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the, you think you're prepared, but once someone actually goes right through your, your P&L, they ask you all the due diligence questions and you've also got to make sure, you know, what's happening with all the assets, et cetera. It is a quite a lengthy process. Like you said, it's not something where you get, you pop the champagne soon as someone verbally says, I want to buy the business. There's a lot of loops to go through. For, for you looking back, is there anything you do different now knowing the experience you went through if you were selling again? I think if I could have done it again, I would have invested more money in paying for support people for the sale. So I had a lawyer that that I buy figures for, for the lawyer. And then I had my accountant that did just a little bit of work. I did most of that myself. But all of the document preparation and correspondence and all of that, I owned and managed. And so I basically had two jobs. One job was running the business, which had to continually be ran. And if it, you know, was going to, things would fall through the cracks that could jeopardize the sale. And I had to do this other job, which was working with two very, very intelligent buyers who great people, by the way, and they, if they're making it an investment, like they did, they want to make sure that they're not buying something that's a dud. And so they went through with a fine tooth comb lists of every client, how much money was spent, how much money was spent in this period, who ran the projects, what are all the consultants that were ever hired by the company, what's the turnover on them, interviewing our top five, like I had to set up interviews, which that was, a, you know, like a big ask for our biggest accounts to have these interviews set up. I could go on and on, but just very, very intense vetting full login access to our accounting system, full login access to our Salesforce org, full login access to our HR system. So extremely detailed, intense vetting uh, was what was going on and just a lot of work to, um, to manage that process and so many questions. And I think the bane of my existence was getting these requests that would be requiring me to download several Excel sheets and combine them and then reformat the data and the data that we captured wasn't in the format that they wanted. And so I would end up dealing, being in like Excel hell for hours and hours. And that happened many times. 
Yeah, yeah. And look, it is. I was fortunate that my business partner did most of that part of it, and I did the negotiation because in my corporate life, I used to buy you know billion dollar businesses. So that meant it was a lot easier for me to to do the negotiation. And to be honest, for some of the stuff, I just pushed back and said, "You're not getting that." No. Can, in other words, I said, "Can you prove how that's going to influence your decision? You know, how's that going to influence your decision?" And when so once I sort of pushed back on a couple of them, well then you know, it became less. So everyone's got their own experience and everyone does due diligence in a different way. But I think it's a really good point to sort of understand that process as uh, before you jump fully into it, because it is, it is uh, very extensive. So that's, you know, one thing is, is get, get some, some help. And as far as you now having a CEO, you, you know, you're continuing on with the business. Is there anything that you would recommend based on that experience, you know, would you say to an owner, you know, that that is a great experience to do that or would no, you know, effectively sell the business in, in entirety and, and, and exit? What what sort of your advice on those options? You can clarify a little further. Yeah. So in other words, you know, some people like to, you know, stay on and have some form of earnout or small equity play like you've got, or other people like, no, if I'm going to sell the business, I'm going to completely sell the business. I'm going to walk step away and, and not be involved anymore. Your experience, did you consider both of those options or was it only ever one option for you to sort of stay on uh, post the sale? Yeah. So, I mean, I talked to a lot of different buyers and some wanted, I think just about all of them wanted a period that I would stay on board. And I, I was wanting, my walk away point was I, I would not work for the business for longer than two years after the sale. And I was hoping for something that would be in the the three month to a year range. It it worked out being in that range. You know, I think for a business the size of mine, I was playing a very important role. And so I wore a lot of different hats. And if I just handed the keys over and said, good luck, they would be really struggling. And so there's been a lot of transition work and a lot of process that wasn't really tracked because it was just stuff that I knew how to do and I would manage it on my own. And so now that other people are managing this more and I, it ends up taking so much more work, so many little things where I could just do it myself really quick, but one, we still have to do it. Two, I have to train someone. And then three is it's going to take them some time to figure it out. And then so I have to like continually help like reinforce or remind or tweak or fine tune something because someone's newer to a certain type of process. You know, I think if you are gearing up a sale, I think it, it, it is difficult. Some of that you can do prior to sale, but some of it's just got to practically happen once the sale has gone through, like uh, all of us suggested. So uh, look, uh, overall, congratulations on it. I know a lot of us want to sell the business. Very few do. You've been lucky too. I've been lucky too. And uh, and well well done for you know in six years creating a seven figure business and, and selling it. What we're going to do now is go through the rapid fire where I'm going to ask you four questions, and I'm going to get your rapid responses. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So the first thing is, what do you do each day? You know, what are your daily habits to help scale Ever Peak Partners? I would say you you need to show up and you have to have good energy. And so drinking enough water, eating well, getting good sleep is really important. And then being able to plan and focus your time on what's most important. Right. And the next one is where do you go to find out more about 
growing your business? I don't know that there's one specific source, but I think real world experience is, is one of the best ways to learn. And then also auditing and evaluating what you've done. So I record a lot of my sales calls and sometimes I'll listen to them back and see if there's areas where I could have done something differently. Yeah, great. And the next is, uh, if I could grant you one wish, uh, Everpeak partners now, what would that be? I would love to see Everpeak be around in, in a decade. I'd love to, to be able to leave a legacy with this business where it continues to grow. Uh, likely I'll play more of an advisor role in the future. Right. And, and the last one is, you know, through this whole six-year journey, what do you know now that you wish had learned earlier? Oh, that's a good question. I think the recurring revenue one was big, but I would say if whatever is the weakest link in your business is going to cause a lot of issues. And so if you're really strong on sales, but your delivery isn't as strong, that's going to defeat the whole point of all the sales that you get and vice versa. If you're incredible at delivery, and I know lots of folks that fall into this category that are very technical and smart, but they haven't learned sales then you're going to have all this ability to deliver and you're not going to have the projects and the revenue that you want. So I think you really like in the big scheme of things, you've got sales and delivery and you have to be really good at both, or you're just going to have a sort of a leaky bucket where one is negating the other. Yeah. Yeah, Brilliant. Well, look, uh, thanks a lot for coming on and sharing everything that you have today. It's uh, fantastic to have someone on that's open enough to talk about the journey they went through. Once again, congratulations, and we will uh, do our best bet to uh, get you to that 10-year mark. Oliver, thanks a lot for coming on the Paul Higgins podcast today. My pleasure. Great interview with Oliver, where he really gave you a playbook on how to, one, get leads out of Salesforce, which I think was uh, brilliant, the way that he did that, but also then how to uh, get as many buyers as he did in the process and how he went through the sale. More importantly, that you know, one and a half years out, get that recurring revenue model, which, you know, please start that today, even if you're not going to sell your business. If you love what you heard or saw, depends on the mode that you're you're listening or watching, uh, please share it on LinkedIn with Oliver. He'd love that. He's very active on LinkedIn. The profile's in the show notes. And also, if you know other peers that are looking to sell or looking to change from a standard income to, or a you know, buy hour to a recurring revenue, please share it with them. They'll think you're an absolute rock star. Also check out our solo shows and I'll see you next time on the Paul Higgins podcast for more quick and simple ways to grow your tech consulting business and live a life more of what you want right now. Time for action. Subscribe, comment, and let me know what you like best about this episode. Plus, get your exclusive show extras and growth action guides for subscribers only visit techconsultantsblueprint.com.